We come this evening to Daniel chapter 2, and as we turn there, let's pray. Oh Lord, we're not here by accident. We've just expressed that in song. We know whatever you ordain is right, you have ordained that we be here. And so now we ask that you would give us ears to hear for these remaining 40 minutes of our time together that we might learn from your word, we might be challenged, we might be helped, we might be encouraged, and that you, O Lord, would be magnified. You who know all things, do all things, uphold all things, are the revealer of all that you choose to show to your people. And we pray that we would honor you. In Christ we pray, amen. Every pastor has his share of strange stories. Here's one of mine. It is 100% true, though it sounds like it's a joke as I start it, but it's true. It was, I don't know, maybe uh, more than a dozen years ago, and I was fairly new in ministry, and it was my first, second, third year as a senior pastor, and I had a young man walk into my office he was maybe in his early 20s, which was a little bit younger than me at the time. And he lived in the apartment building next door. And he walked in, and uh, I suppose my admin let him in, which was, I suppose, God's ordination for me to, if nothing else, give me this sermon illustration all these years later. So he came in, and I'd never seen him before, and I said, sit down. He said, can I, can I talk to you? I really want to talk to a pastor. I said, well, I'm a pastor, okay. I said, what's on your mind? He sat down, and he said, can you interpret dreams? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I tried not to laugh. I said, um, I don't have a lot of experience in interpreting dreams. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't learn about that in school. I haven't done that very much, so I'm not sure I'm going to be very much help to you. And he was very earnest. He was sincere. He was perplexed. He said, Pastor, I just keep having the same dream over and over again. I, I need some help. And so I, I took the bait. I said, what was your dream about that you keep having? And he was completely serious. This was not a joke. He said, I keep having the same dream over and over again about Eva Longoria from Desperate Housewives. I said, well, that's interesting. Now, you'll maybe don't go look it up, but she was like the, the Kardashian of 10, 15 years ago. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not really adept at interpreting dreams, but let me give this one a shot. You should stop watching Desperate Housewives. <laughs> and you should pray before you go to bed that you would dream about something other than Eva Longoria. I don't know what the dream means, but this, this is a different kind of dream, and I'm just going to go on a limb and say, God wants you to stop having that dream. And then I took him out to lunch, and we talked about something else. That was my most successful attempt at interpreting dreams other than the sort of dreams that you have, the 
showing up to school or work and you forgot to get dressed. So that means something about some anxiety somewhere. Running a race and you're like running in quicksand and you can't move. I have that one. Um, I have the stress dream that you probably don't have, but I have often that I'm missing a plane or I'm missing a church service and I left my sermon somewhere and somebody's waiting and I, I forgot to do the sermon this week. So yes, dreams may tell us something, but we don't tend to have the sorts of dreams that we find in the Bible where God is meaning to speak to us at many times and in many ways, Hebrews tells us, God spoke to us in ages past and in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so there is a difference as we see in the unfolding of redemptive history. Well, this dream in Daniel 2 is meant to communicate something, not only to Nebuchadnezzar who had it, but also to us all those years later. And you don't have to be an expert in interpreting dreams to see that we have a God who can reveal the most difficult mysteries and reign over the hardest hearts. That's what we see here in Daniel chapter 2. Follow along as I read this long, but fascinating story. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream. We will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. 
Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory... And into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and then yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these." And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they shall mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
And just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. We can divide this long chapter into four parts. The king's command, God's revelation, the dream's interpretation, and Daniel's promotion. The first part, we see the king's command. We read at the very beginning in verse 1, this takes place Two years into his reign, we know from history that Nebuchadnezzar was facing a western foe that distracted him and prevented him from pushing his kingdom farther south into Egypt. Perhaps he was already feeling the political and the military pressure as leader over the region's dominant superpower, so much so that he's having fitful dreams and sleep is escaping him. The picture we have not only here in chapter 2 but in the rest of the book of Nebuchadnezzar is a man with a, a, an almost neurotic kind of insecurity. Think about him. He has all of the earthly might and power in the world and it cannot give him a good night's sleep. Now, we don't know for sure, but you think later in Daniel chapter 6, there's no mention of Daniel having any sleepless night, even when he spent the night there in the pit with the lions. The Lord gives to his beloved sleep, but here is a man with all earthly honor and wealth and power unimaginable, and he is restless. The picture of Nebuchadnezzar is of a man of extreme emotions, actions, Mood swings, we might say. Sometimes he gets it profoundly right and shows repentance or at least spirit-prompted regret. And at other times, he is the height of idolatry. We see this here and in the rest of the book. Think about it. At the beginning of the chapter, he's ready to kill every single one of his cabinets. All of you supposed wise men, off with your heads or your limbs, I guess, to death with you. And by the end, one of those wise men, Daniel, he's bowing before him. It says homage, but you could translate it worshiping. He's worshiping Daniel as if he were the God of heaven. He is a man with fitful mood swings. And so as he has this dream, he's agitated and he summons his astrological cabinet to stand before him. And he said, I had a dream, and I'm troubled to know what it means. Now, you notice in verse 4, the Chaldeans, another word for this, this cabinet of astrologers and enchanters, said to the king in Aramaic. Aramaic is related to Hebrew. 
but it's a different language, and it's one of the few places in the Old Testament where we have Aramaic instead of Hebrew. New Testament's all Greek. The Old Testament, almost all of it's Hebrew, but there's a few sections, and here's one of them, that they speak to him in Aramaic, and then perhaps as Daniel, if he's the author, whoever the author is, writing down that speech in Aramaic, goes on to continue writing the book in Aramaic until the end of chapter 7. And so from here until the end of chapter 7 in the original language, it's Aramaic. But they speak to him. And they say in verse 4, O king, live forever. Now, if, if you know the rest of this story, that should prompt a, a chuckle, a guffaw, perhaps, because there is a profound sense of irony. For by the end of the chapter, we will see that even mighty Nebuchadnezzar is just one more earthly king over an earthly kingdom whose time will soon be passed. If there's one thing that will absolutely not come to be, it is that Nebuchadnezzar will live forever. He's about to find that out if he has ears to hear it. But they are like any good court servant trying to pay him homage and build him up. And uh, they know who butters their bread. Oh, king, live forever. But he's a very unreasonable king, is he not? And he makes quite an unreasonable request. It's one thing to say, would you interpret my dream? Like Joseph had to do, at least Joseph knew what the dream was. This whole story is very much like Genesis 41, except it's even greater. It's Genesis 41 on steroids because they don't even get to know what the dream is. Now, some commentators say that Nebuchadnezzar must have forgotten his dream. And you, you may have a dream sometimes, and you wake up, and you're in a panic, and you can't quite remember the details, but something agitated you. I don't think that's the case here. It seems as if he, he doesn't trust his men. Perhaps he doesn't trust them with the information he could give them. He certainly doesn't trust that they will give him a truly inspired interpretation he thinks that if I just tell them what the dream is, anybody can go back and say, oh, <clears throat> yes, I, I know. Let me give you the interpretation. Who's to say it's such a, a moving target? It's so ambiguous. Who's to know what the real interpretation is? So, oh, no, no, Nebuchadnezzar's no dummy. He says, I'm not going to trust your interpretation. You want the gifts I'm going to give you, the honors I can give you? I want to know that this is really the true interpretation. So you need to not only come up with the interpretation, but you need to know the dream. So go to it. He is something like a lost little child, afraid in the dark. Sinclair Ferguson makes this astute observation. He is like so many people in life. Because he is not at peace with himself, he is not at peace with the world. He's agitated, he's anxious, he's bothered, he's having dreams keeping him up at night. He doesn't know what they mean. He's, he's a mask of all sorts of insecurities and as happens so often, because he is not at peace with himself, he is not at peace with the world. And so he's ready to tear them limb from limb. Hurting people very often hurt people. 
Agitated people, anxious people often make life agitated and anxious for other people. Something to keep in mind as you bear patiently with others and it's something to perhaps reflect on even in your own life. We all see it in in small measure. A husband who comes home and because he had a frustrating, stressful day at work, all the kids are going to be the brunt of it. Or a mom who's not getting enough sleep and is stressed past the breaking point and so everybody else is going to have it. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But perhaps it's not just a day or a moment here or there, but it's the story of your life. You are not at peace with yourself, and so you are not at peace with anyone else. That's Nebuchadnezzar. It often tells us something, too, about the kind of life that these court enchanters were living. We may have gotten the impression from chapter 1 that These men trained in the finest schools of Babylon lived quite a fine life, and they did in some ways. They got to eat the king's food, and they got to be near the center of power. They went to the Ivy League schools of Babylon, and they were trained in all the great books and the literature of the Chaldeans. Quite a posh lifestyle. But behind it all, here's what they had to put up with. An incredibly irrational king who made irrational requests. It was not all it was cracked up to be. And I bet you could talk to many people who have supposedly made it big time in in Hollywood or D.C. or the Academy who tell you that behind the scenes of all of that, the important, powerful people they get to work with is a life that is quietly miserable filled with exceedingly high demands. Perhaps some people would bear witness to that even in ministry, though we hope it would not be the case. The king's request and command is an impossible one, except for God. Which brings us to the second part, verses 14 through 30. The king's command and then God's revelation The decree goes out, kill all the wise men. And we read in verse 13 that they were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions because, of course, all the four of them are a part of this cadre of astrological cabinet members. And they're about to be killed. But Daniel, remember, he's still a very young man, perhaps just a teenager, He replied, verse 14, with prudence and discretion. Now, young people, some of you here, teenagers or 20-somethings, how often when you think of all of the things that you want to be in life, think, oh God, if only I could be a man or woman with prudence. No, it's not at the top of your list. That's not what you would ask the genie of the lamp. Oh, Lord, may I be a young man of prudence and discretion. But it is here from God that he would act wisely. The first wise thing he does is he buys himself a little time. It's the first rule in negotiating. Don't negotiate against yourself. You always want the other person to make the first pitch. And so, um, all right, go ask Nebuchadnezzar, what what kind of timetable are we on? Well, it's going to buy him a little time that Arioch, rather than tearing them limb from limb, has got to go back and he's got to ask Nebuchadnezzar and say, all right, I got one guy. He seems kind of interested in the job. He wants to know what sort of timetable. How long does he have to get this project done? 
And then you notice an even greater act of wisdom. Daniel went in, requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation. So he gets a little time. And then Daniel, verse 17, went to his house, made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions. And here's what they do. Told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. Notice the first thing they didn't do. They didn't say, okay, guys, I, I got us a few weeks or months Days, quick, get all the scrolls, get all the stuff that we, when we graduated summa cum laude from the University of the Chaldeans at Babylon. All right, let's go. What do we got here? What are we working with? Certainly there's a time and place to study hard, but on this occasion, they knew that those were worthless for the task at hand. No, they prayed. I find it a rebuke to my own instincts, maybe to yours is that your first instinct in time of trouble, in time of haste, time of pressure. Okay, 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 I just have a few moments or I just have a short time, what do I do? I can pray. That's the first thing he does. Actually, it's the only thing we know that they did. As they beseech the God of heaven, would you give us mercy? And God did. And the mystery verse 19, was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And so he offers this explosion of praise in verses 20 through 23. Now, as you read through it, or you just heard me read through it, you probably, you know, 21, 22, 23, sounds like it might have been from a psalm. It's you know, sort of familiar language. Okay, okay, get on with the rest of the story. But this is quite literally, the structural and the thematic center of the story. When you read through stories like this, you you, you have to notice things that are there that don't have to be there. This prayer of praise doesn't have to be here for the story to work. Verse 19, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. You could skip right from that to verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went into Arioch. The story works. God revealed it. And he goes to Arioch and says, I got an answer for you. You don't need verses 20 through 23, except of course, that that's the whole point of the story. God changes times and season. God gives wisdom and understanding. God reveals deep and hidden things. He even knows, verse 22, the things that are in darkness to us that have not yet been revealed. Our God is a God who can unfold mysteries. You can go through and just count up the verbs that are used throughout chapter 2 And you see that the the heartbeat of this passage is who can reveal mysteries? Who can show us what is true? Just look quickly, verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed. Go down to verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Verse 29. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, uh, he who reveals mysteries made known to you. Verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed. Later in verse 47. Truly, your God is a God of gods, a revealer of mysteries. 
Or you could do the same thing with the verb show in English. Turn the page back to verse 4. Tell your servants the dream, they say, and we will show the interpretation. Verse 6, but if you show the dream and its interpretation. Verse 7, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. Verse 9, if you do not make the, the dream known to me, there is no, no one but one sentence for you. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Show appears in verse 11, verse 16, verse 24, verse 27. You could do the same thing with the phrase, make known. Verse 5, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream, we see it again in verse 9, or later in verse 23, referring to God who makes it known. Again in verse 25, I found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Again in verse 26, verse 28, verse 29, verse 30, verse 45. So we have well over a dozen times reveal, show, make known. That is the question. Who can show us the truth? Who can make known the mysteries of heaven? Only God. The sub-theme, which hopefully is obvious from that major theme, God is the only one to reveal the mysteries. Therefore, we have a, a, a brilliant illustration of the failure of paganism. Look at verse 27. Daniel is so shrewd. He answered the king and said, now we could have just said, um, my God revealed it to me. But he makes his point crystal clear. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Right there, in one half a sentence, he displays with stunning clarity the failure of paganism. Your, your four prized professions, not a one of them could do this. And they all, were it not for Daniel, would have died. But because Daniel knows the true God who reveals mysteries, they live. Is this not another striking example of the Abrahamic covenant that through you all the nations on earth will be blessed? Because of Daniel, the wise men who know nothing of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are nevertheless blessed by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they get to live to see another day. Despite the resounding failure of their pagan religions. The failure is that they have no word from the outside. As one commentator puts it, it is a religious cul-de-sac. Get to the end of the road, it's just driving around and around. They're seeking the revelation of these mysteries, but all they have to listen to is themselves in their own Babylonian traditions and their own literature and the own things that they've said before and that somebody else will say later and then they'll go read it again. It's a religious cul-de-sac around and around listening to ourselves. The God of heaven speaks from outside of this world and makes known to them the mysteries. So Ariok says, well, there's a man from Judah. We've named him after one of our Babylonian gods, Belteshazzar, but he knows more than all of our enchanters 
and magicians. And so we find Daniel standing before the king, just as we see often in the Bible, God's servants standing before powerful, mighty rulers, ready to deliver a message for God, Joseph, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Peter, John, Paul, Jesus himself, standing before the mighty men of their day who are grasping to know what is the truth. And God has revealed it. We see then in the third part, the dream's interpretation. We could get lost in the weeds here, and later on in in Daniel, we'll have opportunity to come back to some of these apocalyptic images and some of the prophetic literature, but just a quick look at the trees, and then we'll step back to see what the forest is about in Daniel's interpretation. We look in close, and it's clear enough what Nebuchadnezzar has seen. He has seen a vision of a giant, frightening statue comprised of metallic elements in descending order of monetary value. So gold at the head, then silver at the shoulders and arms, bronze at the chest and the thighs, then iron in the legs, and iron mixed with clay in the feet. Representative of four kings, four kingdoms. So the iron mixing into later a divided kingdom. He could be referencing specific kingdoms like Babylon, then the Medes, then the Persians, then the Greeks, or some think it's Babylon. Clearly that's first. We know that because he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. It could be Babylon, then the Medes and Persians, and then the Greeks, and then Alexander the Great, or Babylon, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans, or it may be simply a general statement about the course of history from that day forward. It was fairly common in the ancient world to divide history into three or four stadia like this. And in fact, we will see in Daniel in particular, there are a number of schemes of fours. Think about it here. We have a vision of four kingdoms. We already have four young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have four groups of wise men that have been noted. There will be the surprise of finding a fourth man in the fiery furnace. We will later hear of the four winds of heaven, the four parts of the body. And in here, these four kingdoms or kings. So four is clearly an important number throughout this book. But if we step back, and we won't press any more tonight to try to understand. We have visions like this coming up later. But you step back and you see the forest and it, should be rather clear what the main point is. The point is not to try to dissect each of those four parts of the body and those kingdoms, but rather to see the stone cut by no human hand that comes from the mountain and obliterates them all. This is the kingdom of Christ. The stone becomes a mountain to fill the whole earth. If you have a post-mill scheme of eschatology, you could use a passage like that and say, see how the kingdom and the church are going to continue to grow. If you were amillennial, you would say, well, it doesn't say that there is a constant progression toward growth, but only that at the end of the age, finally, we will see that Christ has proven victorious. And I would lean toward that interpretation. But nevertheless, the point is, is largely the same. That this stone, which looks very small, 
will smash this giant frightening statue and eventually fill the whole earth. Isaiah 2, verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. The same prophecy uttered in Micah chapter 4. So this fifth kingdom is the heavenly kingdom, the kingdom that never ends, the, as Jesus would say, the tiny mustard seed that ends up being the largest tree in the garden. The point that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't seem to understand, but I hope you do, is that human might does not last long. Verse 31, you saw, O king, notice Daniel placing the king now as almost a passive spectator in his life. You may seem to be big and impressive now, but, but you're not writing the story of your own life. And neither are we. These kings, these kingdoms, they come and go not by accident, but by God's design, by his foreordination. And we see this giant, frightening, terrifying statue which represents all of the, the majesty and might of earthly power. What a flimsy support it has. Its very feet are feet of iron and clay. This whole mess of human glory on a rickety foundation. There's a strange language in verse 43, the iron mixed with clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. Probably some reference to royal families grasping hold of their power as they often would do and they would intermingle with other royal marriages. This is a way to hold on to our power that we can, we can unite with another kingdom through alliances made in marriage. Even that, Daniel says, will not work. It will come to an end. It will all come crashing down. Brothers and sisters, let us not be impressed with human power, especially political power, no matter how iron-ish it may seem. I do like to follow the political ins and outs and sort of know what's happening in Washington, D.C., and talk to friends or other pastors that, that I know there and say, did you read this article or did you hear this thing or did you read this latest book that's about all these behind the scenes? And you know what they say to me? You know what? When it's all around you, you get real tired of it and you realize what a facade it all really is. That doesn't mean there aren't good people there. We don't need good people there. But it is to say that beneath all of the veneer of might and political power and intrigue is a great and powerful Oz that's not all that powerful. My friends at uh, a church that I know well in D.C. on Capitol Hill have told me a few times this illustration. They said... Uh, for 30 years, Mark Hatfield was a Republican senator from Oregon. He's a Christian, sometimes attend this church on Capitol Hill. And some of you who are old enough to know him in his heyday 
from 1967 to 1997, may remember him. He was the governor of Oregon before he was a senator for 30 years. He was widely respected by many. He, he seemed to straddle the aisle on a number of different issues. In 40 plus years of political service, he never lost an election. He left office in 1997, died in 2011. For 30 years, he was one of the most influential people on Capitol Hill, Senator Hatfield. My friends in D.C. tell me, you know what? Today, all these bright young people running around working in this office or that place in D.C., they've never heard of him. And I bet unless you're of a certain age, and even if you are of a certain age, oh, did I hear that guy once before? And they don't tell the story to, to poke fun at Senator Mark Hatfield, but rather to illustrate how quickly today's superstars become tomorrow's never-read Wikipedia article. You have to Google them, as some of you will. I think I remember something about that guy. It doesn't matter how impressive you are or I am, you and I will be that guy, that girl. Trump's not going to last forever. Whether you think that's good or bad, he won't. Move on. Someone else will dominate the news every day. Nebuchadnezzar was a head of gold, destined to crumble in a few short decades. We see finally Daniel's promotion. Nebuchadnezzar falls upon his face. He pays homage to Daniel. He worships him. That's what he does. One commentator says we shouldn't try to hide it. That's what you might expect a pagan to do. You tell me dreams and interpretations, I worship you. He acknowledges three things. Number one, your God is a God. Now, don't think that he's had a conversion experience. We'll see in the very next chapter. He's not any kind of monotheist who understands that that's the only God. Nobody says, okay, Daniel, your God is a big deal. Number two, he rules over kings. And number three, he reveals mysteries. So at least, though he doesn't fully understand what he's saying, he has said three true things about Daniel's God and ours. We see these kingdoms make sense of an otherwise chaotic, seemingly random history, provide structure and order that we do not believe as some worldviews that history is just going in cycles. We may see things repeat itself, but we know that ultimately history is linear because God is bringing it to a climax. God is the one in charge of history. God is the one who raises kings and tears down kingdoms. So yes, in the final scene here, Daniel gets a promotion, but the point is not Daniel's promotion as much as it is God's exaltation. Andrew Melville was one of the key figures in the establishment of Presbyterianism in Scotland in the 16th and 17th century. He was the moderator of the General Assembly in 1578 when they established their Presbyterian polity which has always had at its heartbeat that Christ is king. This is what Melville said before James VI of Scotland, later who would be James I of England. He said, sir, we will always humbly reverence your majesty in public. 
But since we have this occasion to be with your majesty in private, we must discharge our duty or else be traitors both to Christ and you. Therefore, sir, at diverse times I have told you, so now again I must tell you, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the Lord of the Commonwealth, and there is Christ Jesus, the King of the Church, whose subject James the Sixth is, and whose kingdom he is not a king, nor a lord, nor a head. Scottish Presbyterianism has not shied away from using that language of two kings and two kingdoms. Of course, they're emphasis was, and you, earthly king, have no business being a king over the church. It wasn't that they thought that the earthly king was not somehow also under the lordship of Christ. That's why he says there is King James and there is Christ whose subject James is. Whether you recognize Christ or not, you always owe him your worship and obedience. But the point they were making, and that Daniel 2 is making is that Christ is Lord, no earthly king. Whether you look to be gold, silver, bronze, iron, or clay, it all comes smashing down, and that little stone, cut by no human hands, will become a mountain to fill the whole earth. Christ is Lord of all. Jesus the carpenter makes a coffin for every earthly king and kingdom, for they all pass away. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone to overtake them all is Christ and his kingdom, which finds expression here and now in the church. So do your part, do your best, pray, be faithful. Sometimes in Babylon you get promoted for doing your best. Sometimes in Babylon, you get thrown into the fiery furnace. In both, the Lord is God. And he will be God when we are gone. He will be God when our president is gone. He will be God when our speaker of the house and our governor are gone. He will be God when the United States is gone. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, to you belong the kingdom, the majesty, the power, and the glory forever and ever. And so we worship you and pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.